Welcome to Extreme Pragmatism. Today, we tackle an issue core to who we are as a nation, individualism. Are we a product of our collective effort for progress, or simply many coexisting to create a better world for themselves? This debate is rooted deep within the conservative versus liberal paradigm, and one that will become increasingly important as the defining problems of our time continue to worsen. The answer lies somewhere in between, embracing our individualistic beginnings while also harnessing our power when unified. The fate of our nation lies in our ability to solve problems. The question is, how? Hi, I'm Ryan Jefferson. Welcome back to Extreme Pragmatism. And today I want to talk about a topic that's probably one of the more divisive out there and underlies most of, if not all, of political debates today. That's the idea of American individualism. Um, most of the people in my life, and I would imagine in most people's lives, tend to have a very defined opinion on American individualism because it is so central to the American ideal. We often talk about how we are the most capitalistic society on the planet, which is fair to a point, and that all of our growth and all of our prosperity stems from the individualistic society that we live in. We tend to push back against any collective spirit mostly because we're worried about the oncoming threat of autocracy, which we view as inevitable if we move left at all. Today I'd like to push back against that idea to a certain extent. You'll hear us talk a lot about absolutes, and we'll finish this, this episode talking more in depthly about speaking in absolutes. But this is by far the big ex biggest example of destructive absolutes. So if, beginning with the conversation on individualism has to start with history, what America is really about. I think people generally misinterpret what moves society forward and what, move, what has moved America forward in the past. We view it as a very individualistic effort. It's the, it's the work of the single man grinding you know, f five, six days a week, working long hours, building life for, for himself. And we view America as the product of many of those types of people. And to a degree, that's fair. The work ethic of Americans has always been top-notch. Even when we have the, the ability to work less hours, the ability to be more productive and spend more time in leisure, not necessarily the, the old-fashioned version of leisure, but in doing passion projects and working on things we're extremely into. That idea of America has merit. I think to say otherwise is counterproductive and insulting to a large degree of Americans who have worked that way. I've seen it myself, people who work from nothing, who don't get a ton of help, and we'll come back to that notion as well, but they work their way up into being middle class to upper middle class Americans or even beyond that when they didn't start anywhere near that. That story is very, very common in America, but we'll find as we continue this discussion that A, it's not as common as we'd like, and B, we are not the leader in socioeconomic mobility in the world, contrary to the beliefs of many individuals. So if you look at history, and it's important to do so, especially in this debate, the Constitution guarantees rights to individuals. It isn't a collective, it isn't a collective piece. It's 
aimed at individuals, their rights, individual human rights. That's what it is. So the idea that the spirit of the individual colors American thought and American discourse from its very origin is undoubtedly true. It's tough to mount an argument against the idea that individualism is core to the founding of America. But that would change as we'd move on to some degree. And most who are academics in the field of government and politics will vouch for the fact that as nations age, as they mature, they tend to move more left. And I'll make an argument shortly that maturation and the gradual shift left to a point is productive to the whole, especially with a nation that has the scale that we do. So that individualistic nature would stick. It would stick for about a century. But that being said, during that century, our fight for independence, our fight for autonomy, our fight to become an economic power was very much rooted in this collective ideal of being an American. We stand with other Americans. That's what we do. Collectivism, in its most academic sense, is connected to the idea of Marxism. In a very, in the most academic dry sense, it's connected to Marxism. But the iteration of it today simply serves as a counterbalance to destructive individualism. Now, as our country grew, we inevitably faced bigger threats. We faced threats that were contrary to our ideals, contrary to our growth, contrary to our existence. And when we faced those, it was those who called upon a collective American spirit that led us through those dark moments. Whether it be George Washington in the, in the Revolutionary War, whether it be Abraham Lincoln in the Civil War, coming together collectively against the idea of slavery. Both of those men were very much collectivist. They knew, pragmatically, that while individualism is important, we can't be individualistic to the detriment of us as a people. When there's an external threat that a single man can't face, we have to come together. You see this as a response every so, every so often. It's, it comes every few decades we see a shift. We lived in a very liberal society, a more collectivist society, starting with Franklin Delano Roosevelt with the New Deal. It ebbed back and forth, but generally stayed in a more collectivist mindset for a good 50 or 60 years. And then Reagan hit. And so with Reagan, you saw the pushback to the right, a pushback to individualism, a push against this notion of an overreaching government, of top-down 
social cues and the economic cues. There was a very strong conservative revolution that lasted a good 12 years. And from there, we haven't seen any prolonged collectivist or individualistic movement. They tend to bounce back and forth much more than they used to from Reagan, Reagan and Bush, H.W., to Clinton, back to W. Bush, back to Obama, and now to Trump. And now you're seeing this collective movement against Trump, which could get him ousted from office towards a more collectivist mindset. And you see it very much with the proposal of the Green New Deal by Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And the idea of social media hasn't made this debate any easier. Trends were slower decades and decades ago. Now everything's at our fingertips. Information is at our fingertips. Being able to push back against any movement just takes a few flicks of the, flicks of the fingers. And you see that with the debate, especially over the Green New Deal. And so this debate has been core to the American discourse for its entire existence. It's common in every nation, and you see it with the spread of nationalism across the globe following the election of Trump, whether it be Marine Le Pen in France, whether it be Gert Wilders in the Netherlands, whether it be Brexit, you can go on and on. Poland, Hungary have become more right-wing and to a point xenophobic. These are debates that happen all around the world. But there is no place where individualism is, he is held as dearly as the United States. It's core to who we are. We're, we're very capitalist. And so to that point, I think you can't discuss this idea, this debate, without moving on to a very fundamental economic debate that I hear often and is a product of many people's very binary thinking. And you'll find that'll be a theme in a lot of our content and in a lot of our discourse, this idea of binary thinking. But looking at the spectrum of capitalism and socialism, people often misunderstand this debate and will push back against anything that moves us either more left or more right. Because there are two, two broad demographics that you'll find are very loud in their conviction. And you'll find that often the most reasonable voices are very much not the loudest. They're usually in the back somewhere while the loud extremist voices are the ones that are heard more broadly. And in this debate, that's certainly the case. So you'll find with the Green New Deal is a, is a great example in this department, most people on the right, conservatives, libertarians, far-right individuals, you'll find that anything that is in the Green New Deal that is even semi-left-leaning is labeled socialist and stigmatized. Trump's approach against the same thing, the Ocasio-Cortez's of the world, has been to label them socialists, to shout Venezuela, and to try to stigmatize it to their base. 
Now, on the flip side, you see a lot of the cuts to Medicare and Social Security being proposed. The rollbacks of the Affordable Care Act, rollbacks of civil rights, things of that nature. You see this fierce backlash against those on the left saying that we're worsening the income inequality divide. We're worsening inequality. We're dividing. We're placing these dividers between certain people in America and not allowing them to be as successful as certain other nationalities or lifestyles. It's these very powerful messages on both sides that resonate with, the, with their bases. And to a degree, we need to listen to those. But the idea of a better America is rooted more in a notion of pragmatic thinking. And it's obviously pretty clear throughout our content thus far that pragmatism is very much core to who we are. So is empathy. But empathy rooted in pragmatism. So these emotional poles between the socialist and capitalist debate, which is an extension, an example of the individualism versus collectivism debate, they're not going to lead us to productive results that mend any fences. It simply resulted in more divisiveness, and it will unless we argue more on merit. As we've grown beyond the era where we implemented Social Security and the era where we implemented, implemented Medicare and Medicaid, the 30s and then the 60s respectively, you'll find that they're generally heavily supported across the political spectrum. That's because as you move on from decade to decade, more reasonable thoughts prevail. They say hindsight is twenty twenty, <laughs> and you'll find that's especially true when you strip the emotion out of things. When you take the emotional, inherent, instinctive human response to some of these larger, widespread policies like Medicare and Medicaid, Social Security, and more recently the Affordable Care Act, you look at it more from a more reasonable standpoint. That is probably the biggest leap we need to take, but that idea involves pushing aside the fact that we are just an individualistic society. That implicit bias does not allow us to look at things from a reasonable perspective, to be evidence-based, to be merit-based. Fierce individualism can hurt the collective, and if it hurts the collective, it hurts the individual. You see this very broadly in the Trump base, with individuals who voted for him in the Midwest, who are the biggest welfare recipients, 
hurting themselves because they vote for this fierce individualism. Income inequality continues to get worse. Welfare benefits are being stripped back, which in an individualistic society means that it's up to us. It's up to the individual. But at some point, striking a balance becomes more important than having the right to do anything that we want. American individualism has to lie on a spectrum. And you see this in communities. Communities are the, are the great response to anything more broad like this debate. And you can look at any community. My community is an example. My hometown's an example. And the town I currently call home, both can be elevated as great examples. And, and, and there are hundreds of communities across the country that that ranks true as well. You'll see, when it's on your home turf, it doesn't really matter where the solution comes from as long as it benefits people. Whether it's economic development that's spread broadly and doesn't create gentrification and builds up communities and brings people in, you'll find that those policies are generally supported no matter, no matter your political leaning. But there's this caricature that we create on both sides where we come to detest individuals across the aisle because it is a caricature. It isn't people. At the end of the day, the people making these decisions at the top are people just as much as those who make decisions in your community who you'll support because you know them. And that's a great example of the empathy we talk about. We, we've spent the beginning of this piece talking about pragmatism, but that's empathy. That's understanding that often, with, except, with definite exceptions, there is a moral thought process at work. If you look at most conservative-leaning individuals, and I come from a very diverse area politically, and you know them, you know that most of it's rooted in a positive light. This individualistic nature is built on people saying, you know, if it's you that succeeds, there's no one that can take it away from you. There's this sense of purpose. There's this strong sense of virtue that you did that, that you built a life for yourself. And to many conservatives, that means ripping off the Band-Aid so people can feel that. I think often those opinions are painted in a poor light like those individuals just want an uneven playing field. 
And knowing many of those individuals, I don't think that's true, with exceptions. Once again, there are always exceptions. But broadly, I don't think that's true. And on the liberal side, you see the same thing. Conservatives often paint liberals out as trying to create moochers to get votes and trying to kill babies and things like that. The liberal thought is very much rooted in the idea of collective advancement and fairness. Sometimes it's not portrayed that way, but it very much is. There are power grabs on the left and the right. There are corrupt people in unions that put a bad face on the left. There are corrupt people on the right who work at large institutions that put a bad face on the right. But debates must lie in empathy. Because at the end of the day, if we're having these debates on a local level, and we know those people, they're going to be different debates. And so while we may be individualistic when speaking more broadly, when you're talking to someone at the dinner table, you're talking to someone at the local VFW, it, it, it doesn't matter. Those broad ideals, they don't matter because you know those people. While you may disagree with them, the spirit is collective. When you're, when you're having those conversations, it's collective. It's greater good. When you're behind a screen, when you're typing things out on Facebook, when you're having these broad discussions about politics with people you don't know, you're instinctively going to be more individualistic because people don't want to admit they're wrong. They don't want to talk about politics and feel like they might be upended by someone they don't know. And so when we discuss this, when we, when, when we discuss the idea of, of individualism and whether it can be destructive, we have to remember that most productivity and most great conversations are built around a collective spirit, built around a community. Communities can be any size, and we have to start viewing America as a community. If we don't, we'll stagnate further. And, and to that point, we have to talk about absolutes. Because one of the biggest destructive forces in America is, is this idea of speaking in absolutes. And this is very much rooted in the individualism versus collectivism spirit, because that debate is inherently binary, which is a very, very common theme in America today and around the world. People are very ideological. And so speaking in absolutes, even on this debate, is not going to allow us to progress. Being collective doesn't mean being ideological. Being collective means refinement. 
any followers of, of business theory will know that one of the more productive and well-known management techniques is the idea of lean theory. And lean theory is inherently collective. It means creating a minimum viable product, showing it to a certain group of people, and help having them help you refine it. And I think that idea of collective refinement is very much the core of how we've always advanced. When we unify, when we decide not to believe in the same ideals necessarily, that's not what unification means. When we decide that we're going to reach a compromise and we're going to collectively just drill through problems and we're going to iterate, continue to iterate, continue to advance ourselves. When we decide that, then we're the best iteration of ourselves. And the one thing that works against that is the idea of individualism. And we can talk about advancement, about moving us forward as a society, but we also have to recognize that individualism implicitly means, implicitly needs, excuse me, that there's an even playing field. It requires it. Or a semi-even playing field. To say that we live in a society that is inherently equal in opportunity is silly. There's really no form of, of argument that's going to convince me or a great number of people that folks in the south side of Chicago who have grown up poor and are being gentrified, that they have any more of an opportunity or even an equal opportunity than folks in Silicon Valley who are the sons and daughters of multi-multi-millionaires. Now, I think it's fair to say that inequality of outcome is just a product of a system that does benefit us generally. I think that's fair. But inequality of opportunity is inherently different than inequality of outcome. When individuals have a very low statistical chance of going to college, of not ending up in prison, and there are demographic similarities between those groups, then we have a problem. And that, that is the core problem that is rooted in our individualistic nature that makes individualism destructive to a degree. We can agree that a lot of American growth and, and you know, the sprawling cities, the incredible wealth that we've amassed is a product of individualism and of capitalism. And to that point, it's hard to argue. I certainly wouldn't. It's just a fact. But binary thinking and individualism won't allow us to iterate beyond where we currently lie. The idea that the pie is only so big that folks who 
start out behind can't succeed because then it'll be to the detriment of someone else that they're taking someone else's success away it's rooted in ideology it's rooted in this competitive spirit that may be central to America but can't be to that degree if it is we'll, we'll further the decay of our social fabrics And then in the end, that progression will only hurt those who are individualistic because we rise and fall together. As one people, we rise and fall. That's how America's always worked. Whether or not you want to believe that one person is driving everything we do, that it's always been that way, that it's one person, it's not. It's always been us. It's always been together. It's always been the unifiers that move us forward, that create this version of America that we hold so dear to our hearts. The great lie is that it wasn't us that did it. It's us. America is us. Progression, innovation, that's us. There's only support around any idea, any person that moves the world forward, there is a support system. And that, in its very nature, is collectivist. Individuals are great because they unify people. So even when an individual is great, it's a product of them harnessing the collective spirit of people. And we have to take that theme to heart especially in 2020, especially as we reach a, one of the most important periods in American history, as in, income inequality worsens, as climate change ravages the United States and the world abroad. We have to live in more of a meritocracy, and a meritocracy will only happen when we're collectivist and we refine the ideas that could possibly solve those problems. And so I call on anyone that's listening to embrace pragmatic thought, to not be ideological, to not support someone in the 2020 election or in any election simply because there's an ideological backing to it. Support individuals like Andrew Yang, who's, who's proposing the idea of a universal basic income and a bunch of other innovative ideas to iterate capitalism. Support those individuals that discuss and refine ideas who are willing to be wrong because they're a part of a collective and they're simply just a medium for exchange so that we can hear new ideas. We can't be individualistic now. That can't be all we are. Yes, you can work your butt off and you can, you can make a life for yourself and you can be a millionaire. You can do all those things and that's still what America is, and that part of it, the, our individualistic spirit is so great. It's the thing I'm extremely proud of in America, that I had the chance to do that. But it can't be all that we are. I can be myself and still be part of something bigger. I can provide ideas to something greater and allow other people to refine them and to move us collectively forward because we are a collective. So if I have 
brought forward any ideas here. It's the idea that it's us. If we want to build a better world that's more equitable, that's that's more fair, that's innovative, that just does the right thing, we have to come together. And that doesn't mean being unwilling to bring forth ideas that are rooted in what you believe, left or right. It means bringing forward those ideas, but also being willing to admit that you're wrong, being willing to iterate, being willing to compromise. We can't say stay stagnant anymore. If we do, we're going to regret it, and we're going to regret it really soon. The next generations will feel the mistakes that we made, the selfishness that we brought forth. So let's change that. Let's strike a balance between individualism and collectivism. Still be America at heart, the fierce individualism that creates the beauty and the wealth and everything that's great about, about America. Let's still do that, but let's also address problems as a people, be willing to be wrong, and be willing to be willing to come together to grab the hands of the people next to you and just to drive forward. If we don't, we'll regret it. Thank you. Next week, I'll be joined by a friend, Nicolette Marasa, who'll join me to talk about income inequality, an issue that's going to be one of the most prevalent of our time for the next few decades and probably the most defining issue of our generation alongside climate change. So tune in for a conversation, the first one with someone new other than me on it. Should be a really fun one. See you next week.